0: Down, O love divine. Open our minds, our ears, and kindle our hearts. Let your fire burn afresh in us this day, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What are you hungry for? I don't know if you noticed, there are a lot of hungry people in this morning's scripture readings. In Exodus, in Psalm 78, in our gospel reading from John chapter 6. And some of you were here a few weeks ago. I preached about the spiritual value of of emptiness, of neediness, and how that relates to trust or the lack of trust. And that's very much happening again in our Old Testament reading this morning. Uh, Psalm 78 puts it quite vividly. They spoke against God saying, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Indeed, he smote the stony rock so that water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Yes, he provided for us miraculously and supernaturally last time, but can he give bread also or provide meat for his people? Can I really trust God with my emptiness again now? And I realize there's some danger of me just preaching the same sermon over again. I'm going to try to resist that temptation. But I think today's readings invite us to take another step and to consider the character of our emptiness. What is it that we're hungry for? What are we supposed to be hungry for? How do we relate to our own neediness? Or to put it another way, what's the role of desire in the spiritual life? What causes desire to pull us away from God and? How can it be set right? Those are the questions I want us to approach these scriptures with this morning. Let's start with Exodus. Right up front, the nature of desire seems pretty straightforward here, right? People want food. We desire not to starve. That's what we desire. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, they say. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I'm starving. Now, there's a little bit of rhetorical overstatement here. But literally what they say is, it would have been better for God to strike us dead when our bellies were full back in Egypt than to die out here by starvation. And whatever... Overdramatization may be built into that statement. Implicitly, their protest is making a kind of distinction between surviving and truly living. You see that? We don't just want suffering and misery, but we get to keep breathing, right? We want our needs to be met, our desires to be answered, our hearts to be satisfied. Now, if you stop and think about it for five or six seconds. Slavery in Egypt doesn't seem like a great way to obtain that sort of deep fulfillment. I think their memories may be leading them astray a little bit here. And as readers, we're meant to recognize that irony, I'm quite sure. But what we encounter in this story first and foremost, I wanna suggest, is the power of desire. The power of desire that's driving their decisions, it's shaping their perception of reality and even their relationship with God. What they want most is what they think will give them life. And their thoughts and their words and their choices and their actions all follow where that desire leads. It's powerful. And isn't this true for us as well? Whatever it is that you're pursuing, whether it's Security, or success or other people's good opinion. I want to know my own self-worth. I want my life to matter. I want to give back or contribute in some way. I want to have amazing experiences. I want to feel pleasure. We want our needs to be met and our desires to be answered and our hearts to be satisfied. We want fullness of life. Isn't this what the phrase YOLO is getting at? You only live once. Don't waste it live to the fullest. And that desire, whatever form it takes, drives us. Our Exodus reading shows us the power of desire. But I think in a more subtle way, and and this might not be an obvious move to make with this text, but stick with me, I think this enables us to recognize the goodness of desire. Part of what I love about Scripture's portrayal of our humanity is that it's so embodied. It's easy for us to try to live by abstractions and set our hearts on abstractions, but go out in the wilderness without a sufficient food supply or, you know, spend time with a child who hasn't eaten recently. You'll rediscover very quickly part of what it means to be an embodied creature is that you have to eat to stay alive. Turns out. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a result of the fall. This is part of the created order. Desire for life is written into our bodies, right? We're supposed to get hungry. We're made this way. We're supposed to want life. God breathes into Adam's nostrils and makes him a living being. This is good. The problem in Exodus is not that God's people need food. The problem is not desire as such. The problem is that hunger is making them forget that they're God's people. Somehow this desire gets distorted, gets twisted up, and their longing for provision displaces their love for the provider. Now, in fact, you notice they don't directly blame God for their hunger. There's a little nuance in this dramatized protest Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's your fault. Okay, but look. In acknowledging that God could have struck them down back in Egypt, isn't there a kind of implicit hidden acknowledgement? As well, that God is the one who has led them out here. Moses and Aaron make this abundantly clear in their response. They say, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. How often do we grumble against a family member or a co-worker or the authorities or the church or our situation, circumstances, because We're trying to avoid admitting to ourselves that our issue is really with God. Just throwing that out there. God has led his people out of bondage, into the wilderness to set them free. Free to worship, if you remember the story. But their desires are still enslaved. Their hearts, and it turns out their stomachs, are still back in Egypt. And this is the third thing we learn about desire in this passage. It's, it's powerful, it drives us. It's good, or it can be, but it's also distorted, it's disordered. What they want is life, and yet their desire is actually pulling them in the opposite direction away from God, back to oppression. This ultimate desire to be truly and fully alive is at war with their immediate desires and it's pulling them apart. This word grumbling is a key word in the passage. It it appears about eight times in 12 verses. Grumbling tells us a lot about how we're interacting with our desires and longings. Maybe we can even say that grumbling is a kind of diagnostic for disordered desire. We're like prisoners on, on the rack. Right? Stretched between what I want and what I want. Oh no. And the strain of that comes out as a grumble. And yes, I'm using a torture metaphor here because disordered desire is awful. It's torment. The people of Israel say it would be better to die than to feel this way. Why didn't he just kill us? And they aren't just talking about empty bellies. right? Desire is powerful. It's written into their bodies, but it's become set against itself and they're in agony. Have you ever felt like your desires are pulling against each other? Have you ever felt like your deepest de- desires are unattainable and it's killing you? Or how about this one? Have you ever achieved a deep desire and then realized, wait a second, I'm not sure that was really what I wanted. There's still that unfulfilled ache there. Here's what happens. First, Moses makes sure that they know who they're really grumbling against. He reorients their perspective on their hunger and brings God back into the equation. Second, he tells them God is going to provide for their need. The Lord is about to send meat in the evening and bread in the morning, he says. But the emphasis here is not just on their hunger being satisfied. And this is important, don't miss this. The emphasis is on God's own self-revelation. What does Moses say? At evening you shall know full stomachs? No, that's true, but that's not how he first puts it. He says, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see bread, the glory of the Lord. Their desire's gone wrong because it's become disoriented, turned away from the Lord who sustains them, and him feeding them is meant to draw them back to seeing and knowing God. It's a revelation of who God Himself is. Now, unfortunately, this is not automatic. We stopped at verse 26 of Psalm 78. It's it's kind of a brief high point. If you read the next five, six verses, it goes badly. You find out that many of the people have their stomachs filled, but their hearts don't change. They taste the miracle, but they don't embrace transformation. Or in other words, it's possible to have God meet you in the place of your desire but still resist the fundamental reordering of your desire. Of course, none of us would ever do such a thing. Those those Israelites, what's their problem? Man, what's that about? Y'all, sometimes it's really subtle. In our gospel reading, Jesus has just miraculously fed 5,000 people. And during the night, he crosses the Sea of Galilee and the crowds come looking for him. Rabbi, when did you come here? They remember what happened in the Exodus, how God faithfully fed his people day after day. And they even quote scripture. Did you catch this? Our song. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We want God to feed us too, they say. We want that divine self-revelation too. We get it, Jesus. So where's the next meal? Here's how Jesus greets them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Their desire seems to be headed in the right direction. They're seeking food from God, yes, but they still stop short of seeking God himself. It's the sign they're after, not the one who's revealed through it. They've tasted the miracle, but they still haven't truly embraced transformation. Transformation. Listen to how Jesus responds. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Many of us, probably most of us, imagine that our spiritual problem is excessive desire. Because we experience desires really powerful. At some level it's good, but it's distorted, it's twisted up, and I have these impulses and longings that are just too strong, and they're pulling me away from God. If desire were only less overwhelming, I think, then I would be free to worship. Then I could pursue God. If I weren't getting pulled in so many directions. This is not your problem, according to Jesus. Our real problem, according to Jesus, is that our desire is not nearly deep or intense or powerful enough. because we're willing to settle for half measures. Yeah. Egypt reduced me to mere property. I was oppressed. I was in forced labor, but that stew was awfully tasty and I had as much as I wanted. Look, like so much stew. Really? Or the people pursuing Jesus thinking, I had a miraculous meal yesterday. Sweet. Maybe I can get another one. And Jesus is saying, "Want more?" Want more? Do you wanna really live? Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Desire more, want better. You experience desire is powerful, but it needs to be strengthened. What's good, what's written into your natures needs to be supernaturalized. What's distorted and disordered needs to be reordered and healed, because if desire drives our decisions and shapes our perspective and perception of reality, and even our relationship with God, the answer to disordered desire can't just be less desire. It's not going to do it. Just the opposite, in fact. The answer is a stronger, fiercer, fuller, more whole and holy desire that refuses to stop short of anything less than the Lord himself. Jesus says the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and what? Gives life to the world. In him alone our needs are met and our desires are answered and our hearts are satisfied. And the truth is that only God can stir up that kind of holy desire in us. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon, I hope you start asking God for an increase of desire to help you want more, desire better, But our scripture readings also offer some hints about how he does that and how we can participate in cultivating this kind of holy desire. I said earlier that hunger desire is written into our bodies. And as we practice disordered desire over and over, that also gets inculcated into our bodies. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the transformation of desire also has to happen in our bodies. There's a reason that in both Exodus and John, God addresses human hunger and longing by saying, I'm gonna give you something to eat. And y'all, it's not just a metaphor, he actually feeds them. And he does it over and over again because desire is habitual. For better or worse, often worse, we cultivate desire by what we repeatedly do. Remember, when they first see this bread from heaven, they don't know what they're looking at. They call it manna from the Hebrew word meaning, what is it? What is this stuff? They have to learn to recognize God feeding them. They have to learn by gathering it up day after day, week after week, and every seventh day, they have to stop and rest and not gather it, but rely on what he gave them the day before to the Sabbath practice to accept the world and even their own work as a gift from God that's ordered toward God, that finds its meaning in God, to recognize we're being set free to worship. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. There's a reason our Sunday worship is so embodied. That We kneel and sing and listen and bow and make the sign of the cross and hear bells and taste bread and wine and And sometimes of the year even smell incense. There's a reason we worship every Sunday. We have Wednesday noon Eucharist. We have daily morning prayer. There's a reason we commit to spiritual disciplines like Sabbath rest. Because desire is habitual. It comes from what we repeatedly do. And God uses this steady, faithful, repeated action to retrain our deep assumptions about what matters, what's good, what's desirable, what will sustain us. And he answers our hunger. You know, it's not just a metaphor. He actually feeds us. It would be wrong to diminish the Eucharist to just a a special meal, right? There's something spiritually dangerous about tasting the miracle and not recognizing the revelation, failing to see the one who's giving himself through it. But it's also an error to lose sight of the bodiliness of the sacrament, right? This is the whole point of sacraments, that God uses physical things, things in his world as instruments to give grace, We truly receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, but the instrument is real food and drink. It's more than mere bread and wine, but it's not less. Because God's desire for us, his desire, is to deepen our hunger, to make us capable of a fuller satisfaction to make us want more, to set our hearts on true and abundant life and seek it from him. And through habitual worship and spiritual disciplines and the sacraments, he reorders and reorients our desire to shape in us a greater capacity for fulfillment. So what are you hungry for? What do you need this morning? What's the desire of your heart? Are you bringing it to God? Our prayer book includes a prayer for satisfaction in Christ. If you want to look it up later. It's on page 673. This was originally written by Lady Julian of Norwich. And I want to close with these words. I want to invite you to make this your prayer as well. Let us pray. O God of your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough for me. I can ask for nothing less that is completely to your honor. And if I do ask anything less, I shall always be in want. Only in you I have all. Amen.